Well, good morning. Morning. It's great to be back with you this week. Uh, I was away last week, had a chance to head back to uh, the homeland, back to Prince George, where I spent almost 25 years of my life. Uh, visiting my sister and uh, her niece who graduated last week, so we're there for the ceremony. My parents came up from Kelowna, so we had a really nice family time together. It was great to, uh, to it's, I think it's the last time we were all together in Prince George has been, gosh, that's got to be 15, almost 20 years ago for us all to be in that place together like that. So it was a really nice time. I did have a chance to see the service, though, because I don't know if you're aware of this, but we're actually doing some, some pilot project right now of live streaming our services on the Internet. And so I actually, Nadine and I were able to sit in our hotel room and have breakfast in bed and watch the service live on the computer, which was uh, kind of a new experience. We're not going to, I'm not sure if you ever watched church from breakfast in bed before, but that was a, <laughs> it was a new experience. It was, it was kind of nice. And I know that you were in good hands because I was able to see Ryan, and thank you, Ryan, for bringing the word last week. appreciate that. As we continued our walk through this book of Ephesians that we've been referring to as, as the playbook. We use that word playbook as we're looking at the book of Ephesians as, as seeing the steps, the necessary steps that God took to achieve his goals and his purposes within our own lives, but then also in taking all of us together into the body of church, in, into the church, into the body of Christ, if you will, as all those people who have, who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for now and forevermore and, and been transformed by the reality of his presence and his love, all of those people brought together in the body of Christ. And, and God has plans and purposes for individuals, but also for the collective whole. And that's kind of the playbook that we've been walking through as we look at the book of Ephesians. Now, all those individuals, Paul refers to them uh, also in another letter he wrote to the church in Corinth. He said this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says that if anyone is in Christ, if, if anyone has placed their faith in him and been transformed by their love, he says if anyone is in Christ, that they are new creations, that, that the new creation has come, that the old is gone and the new is here. Now, what does that mean, that you have a new creation? It, it's this idea that when we are in Christ and we're transformed by his presence, that we have, we have a, new, a new hope. We have, we have a new freedom because we are freed from, from sin and from the demands and the challenges that come with the world that we live in. We're free from those things. We have a new outlook upon the world. It says we have a new heart that comes in. Our hearts are soft and I will give you a heart of flesh. We have this new heart that leads to new desires and, and, and new hopes and even a new view of the self. We can even start to see ourselves in a completely different light. And when I think about this idea of the difference it makes to live our lives in Christ, the difference that he can make within a life, I, I think of this a TV show from a few years back. Maybe you've heard of it, the one called The Biggest Loser. Remember that TV show? It was, a, it was a reality TV show, if you're not familiar with it, where they would take, every year they would take 12 overweight people, and they would bring them to this fancy camp with, with nutritionists and trainers. And they would put them through an intensive, rigorous program of dietary restrictions and, and food. And they would compete, basically, to see who would lose the most percentage of weight for, for the title of being the biggest loser. Now, it was a bit of a controversial show, but it was hugely popular. And, and it had people who would arrive, and a lot of people who would show up at the, at the camp would be sort of 500 pounds and, and beyond. So we're talking a, a significant health issues here. But here's the thing. The people showed up also had uh, other challenges. Other challenges such as very low self-esteem. They had really a lack of a future hope for themselves. They, they really didn't think there was much of a future for them. They didn't think much of themselves. And over the time, while this was a controversial show, over the time, there were some positive changes that you could actually see take place in these people's lives. 
You see, a lot of them came from a history of being bullied, a history of abuse, a history where negative things had happened to them in their past, in their families, in, in society, and quite often it had led to moments of depression, to severe depression at some times. And their drug of choice was food, and which contributed to where they were at that point. And so not only did they start to lose weight because of the excess of uh, not only did they start to lose weight because they were learning new lifestyles and they were learning how to live in a different way than they'd always been, ta been taught, but at the same time, they received counseling and they received uh, some insight into what had happened and they started to emerge not just with shedding the physical weight, but shedding the emotional weight and the challenges that came with, with the reality that they had known in the past. And by the end, not only did they learn the damaging effects of their past events, not only did they learn the damaging effects of their past habits and past lifestyles, but they emerged at the end completely different. Not just different physically, but with a different lifestyle to go out and live. They had different hopes now. They had different dreams. They had different perspectives on themselves, upon the world, upon life, because they were going to go forth and live different because... It, for lack of a better term, they were new creations. And so these big losers, if you will, were sent out into the world to live a different life, a healthier life, a better life, a more fulfilling life. And not only did it take a difference within themselves, but people around them started to notice as well, and people around them would start to live healthier lives too, of a consequence of seeing the difference that it made in their lives. In a way, this is kind of similar to what Paul's been talking about in the first half of the letter. As he writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, and he says, you Ephesians are big losers, basically, which in the wrong context sounds awful. He's saying you're big losers too because you are new creations in Christ. You are no longer slaves to sin. He's saying you are free from that baggage you used to carry around with you from the past shame and guilt of your actions. You are free from having to carry the weight of the world upon your shoulders on your own. You've lost that. You are free from it because Jesus died for it. And placing your faith in him, you have lost it. Therefore, you yourselves are big losers with a new hope, a new future, a new outlook upon the world, new desires, a new hope, and a new future in eternity with the one who taught you to live in that new way. And you know what, folks? The same is true for all of us here today. Because if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the hope for eternity, then I think I can call you guys all big losers too. <laughs> Which, don't go to work telling people that you're a big loser. What did you do at church yesterday? I learned I'm a big loser, right? Or go to school and start saying, I'm a big loser. Do you want to be a big loser too? It, it, it doesn't work in the other context. You can't really take that. It's not transferable. That's why you don't want to show up late for church as well. Because you lose the context of what we're talking about. But that's kind of the idea, is that, is that because of Jesus Christ, we, in, in that spiritual sense, can understand ourselves to be big losers too, because we've lost the past guilt and shame and weight of the world that we used to carry with us. And then when we get to chapter 4, what Ryan introduced us to last week, we see the second half of Paul's letter where his focus begins to change, where he moves from talking about the presenting the theological truths about who we are in Christ, and he moves now towards talking about what it means to live this out. What does it mean to live in light of the fact that we are free from all this past baggage? And he does so with a really pivotal verse that, that Ryan introduced last week, chapter 4, verse 1, where, where Paul says this. 
He says, I urge you to live. I, I urge you to go forth and walk in the world. I urge you to live and walk in a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And this verse was important last week, it's important this week, and for the next few weeks, we're actually expounding upon what he means, but what does it look like to live and to walk worthy of the calling that we have received? And, and keeping with kind of the theme of the, of the big loser of, of the day, it's, he's kind of saying to them, you guys are all big losers, so go act like it. Go live like the new reality in which you are. And the first way we do this is by looking at our character. Does our character match that of Jesus Christ, or is it still weighed down by the baggage and what the world says it should look like? And last week, Ryan talked about how that character of humility and, and gentleness and patience and love should be the things that people see when they look at us. But then secondly, he also talked last week about how as we grow in our knowledge of God, and as we grow in our understanding of what that means in our lives, it should lead us to want to put it into action. It should lead us to live different and act different as we, as we move into works of service. All for the purpose of growing ourselves in spiritual maturity, but also so that we can grow in unity in the body of Christ here. And so as we pick up this teaching that he started last week on how we are to live these new lives, these new identities, we, we, we pick up the lesson in, in verse 17. Where Paul changes it a bit here, he actually changes it to more of a warning. There's a warning that's inherent to the passage we're looking at today. Because in starting in verse 17, he, he speaks as one who has the authority of God himself when, when he assist, insists that they, he insists upon this, he says, he tells them to, to make sure that as they go forth, that they must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. And you may wonder, this is a bit of a confusing verse, because this idea of, of no longer living as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Because if you were with us a few weeks ago, we talked about how there are no longer these groups of, of Jews and Gentiles, that all are one in Christ. And that's true. Because if you remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about how there used to be this, this reality where, where there was the Jewish nation, God's chosen people who were in covenant relationship with him. They, they knew what it was to live in the promises and, and to follow the system he had established with them, that he was with them and protected them and guided them and had given them a future promise and inheritance. That, that was God's chosen people, those who are near to God. But also, Paul said that there were those who were the Gentiles, basically everybody else, who, who were far off. But because of Jesus Christ, those who are far have been brought near. So he just said a few moments ago that there were no more Jews and Gentiles. So why does he no longer live in the path of the Gentiles? What he's referring to here is back at the point when they as Gentiles were far. Before they were brought into the family of God through Jesus Christ. Back how they used to live. Another word for Gentiles here would be pagan. Do not live as the pagans live, meaning those who do not follow and worship the one true God, but rather are, are worshiping and living according to the things of this world, where, where the world is their religion, the world and the desires of the flesh is their desires that they have. And back in chapter 2, he talked about this, chapter 2, verse 3, where he says that if we are not in God, if we are not following the one true God, that we therefore are, rule, we are under the rule of the kingdom of the air, which is a reference to our enemy, the devil. And in that kingdom of the air, under that ruling, then we just follow after the fleshly desires that we have. And in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, all of us, every single one of us used to live this way. We lived that way at one time, and what did we do? We, we simply lived that way by gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following after the desires and our thoughts that come from the flesh, that, that come from the world. That's the old reality in which we used to live. Then he goes on in verse 18 and 19 of this passage, chapter 4, to say that, People who live that way 
their, their thinking and the way that they understand is, is like being blinded. It's futile in their thinking. They're futile in their thinking. Because their view of God and their view of the world is very different from those who are in Christ. Because if you're not in Christ, then you don't have the knowledge and the awareness of the difference that Christ makes in our lives. And so if you don't have God, if you are not near to God, then there is futility in the way that we look at the world, the way that we want to live and dream and hope for the future, because it is devoid of the reality of God's promises. They're separated from God. He says, don't live as though you are separated from God still, because you're not. Now, this idea of being separated from God is not a matter of God having rejected them. It's not that God rejected these people. More accurately, it's that they rejected him. You see, we read about this in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and in 2 Peter chapter 3, where, where it's very clear that God longs for all people, for all people to come into a saving relationship with him. God's desire, God's love is for all people. So it's at no point that God rejected them. He is sometimes seemingly long in bringing about consequences, sometimes long in bringing about the future promises. Why? Because he wants to give people every chance possible to take that step of faith and accept him. It's not that God ever rejected anybody. Jesus Christ died for all people, for all sins, for all time. But at times, people reject him because their hearts are closed. Their hearts are hard to the truth of Jesus Christ. Remember a few weeks ago, we also talked about how we need to open the eyes of our hearts to, to allow the truth and the light of Jesus to come in. And that changes the way that we look at the world and the way we see ourselves and understand the difference and experience the difference he can make within our lives. But people who have their eyes closed in their hearts and have not allowed that light and truth to come in, Paul also says here that they are numb to the reality of their lostness. There are people in this world who are wandering around lostness not even knowing that they're lost. They become numb to that reality. They become numb to the truth that they are wandering further and further away from God when he loves them and wants them to come back towards him. They're numb to the reality of the ill effects that their sin has upon their lives, on their marriages, upon their families, upon the way that they work within society. And if we stay numb to it long enough, if we ignore it long enough, that voice that we once hear for a while, suddenly we start to tune it out. That it's like letting the dishwasher run for a while. After a while, you forget it's running because you just sort of get used to hearing the noise. The same thing happened to the voice, the convicting voice of the Spirit. If we tune it out long enough, we stop really listening to it, noticing that it's even there. This happens in, in all sorts of areas of our lives. We, we know this sensation. If you have never gone hiking before and you decide to go buy a brand new pair of hiking boots and then go climb up a hill and go in bush 20 kilometers, your dog's going to be barking at the end of the day. Your, your feet are going to be swollen and sore and letting you know about it. You do it long enough, eventually don't hurt anymore. I've heard this thing called, called sewing finger. Where when you sew, you, you can prick your finger enough times, eventually you don't feel the pin going into the finger anymore. I know when, uh, when people learn to play guitar, they got to learn those chords, and that's hard on the fingers, getting used to the fingers, but also the pads of the fingers on the strings. Uh, I, I, Brian Adams talked about this, didn't he, when he got his first real six string, the one he bought down at the five and dime? Remember what he did, right? He played until his fingers bled. But Now, that was back in the summer of 69, but he's got, he's got pads on his fingers now, so it doesn't bleed anymore, Right? After a while, we build up a numbness, and, this, and we, we don't feel that anymore. It makes, it makes a difference. The same thing can happen in our hearts. The same thing can happen in our spirits. When we, when we tune out the voice long enough, we stop hearing it. We stop feeling the conviction that comes through. But now Paul reminds them, though, 
He, he reminds them as he continues in this passage that that's not the way that they were taught to live. That's not the truth that they experienced. That's not the reality of Jesus Christ that, that they had learned in the past. That their eyes had been opened to this reality. Their eyes had been opened to the depravity and the effects of the sin that existed within their lives. And in verse 22, in verse 22 he tells them that, that, they, that they were taught that they need to do something different. He says that you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. They're told to put off the former way of life. They, they've had the eyes open to just how spiritually unhealthy they were, to just how much excess of weight and baggage of the world they were carrying with them unnecessarily, that they needed to put off, they needed to lose that weight, that spiritual weight they carried with them. And they started to do it because they began to see, as their eyes were open, they began to see the negative consequences of their former habits, the negative consequences of the relationships that they had continued in the past that were not building them up and making them healthy, but were actually tearing them down. And instead, in verse 23 and 24, he says that they were told to be made new in their attitudes, to be made new in their attitudes of their minds, and to put on the new self, instead of the old self, they're to cast off, to put on the new self, with a new mind, with a new attitude, and by doing so to be created like God in understanding what true righteousness and understanding what true holiness looks like is instead what they're to be working towards. Do you recall a time in your life when the things of Christ seemed like foolishness? Now, if you grew up in the church like me or if you came to know the Lord at a young age, you may not totally understand that that sensation of going from understanding the things of Christ as foolishness to, to having our eyes open to them. If you came to know the Lord as a teenager or a little later in life, you know that sensation. But even if you don't personally know it, you do know people around you who when you share with them that you are a believer, you are a follower of Christ. When you share with them the reality that Jesus loved you so much that he would give his life upon the cross to pay for your sins that you could be free from the consequences and from the eternal wrath of God. And they look back at you like, like this is just... This is just odd. It, it's surreal. Why would the God of the universe who created all things even know my name? It, it seems like, like an odd concept to people who do not know Christ. And yet, as we start to journey towards him and investigate the things of Christ, and they, they start to make a little more sense, and we start to see the validity and the truth and the logic and the reason behind them, we start to take steps closer and closer towards him. We start to put more and more of our belief in him. And then we put those beliefs into practice. We start to look more like him. The attitudes and the change of our minds starts to take place, which then goes from our heads into our hearts and eventually comes out in the way that we live and act in the world around us. As we grow in our understanding about who Christ is, it has an impact upon how we live. It changes our lifestyles. And we can start walking accordingly. But why does Paul present this as a warning? Remember I said earlier that this is a warning he's presenting? Why is he presenting this to us as a warning? Well, it's because all of us, even those who are new creations in Christ, even those of us who consider ourselves in that kind of big loser camp, all of us have a tendency. All of us have this tendency to slip back into the old habits, to slide back, to get complacent and allow those old lifestyles to start to take root again. You see, one of the reasons that this TV show, Big Loser, was controversial was because, not just because of the, the, the whole idea behind it, but also because they were taking people out of the real world, putting them into an artificial setting, and they were going too hard, too fast, and it wasn't sustainable. See, if you look at the people who were on the show for the 12 years or so that it ran, 
over 100 people went through this. And when they followed their stories a year afterwards, almost all of them still believed in the program, still believed in, and knew what it meant to live a healthy lifestyle, still believed in the merits of exercise, still knew what they needed to do, and yet they had slipped back into old habits and they had started to put on some, most, in other cases, even more weight than when they first arrived at this camp. Why did that happen? Why did it happen? Why did they, 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 they shed all of this, this weight that made them so happy? Why would they go back to the old lifestyle? I, I think we know the answer to that. It's because we know celery and water is good for you. But we remember hot wings and beer, right? We remember that Pizza Hut has good coupons this week. And we slip back, right? We know daily activity is good for the body. We know that. We believe in it. We don't, we don't question it. We understand that that's part of our psyche. We believe that that is the reality. And yet when we have to go to work and we got to go home and deal with the house, we got to deal with the kids, and then Netflix, well, some new seasons just came out on Netflix. Whew, I don't know how I'm going to fit that in anymore. All of a sudden, these things we know, we start slipping back into the old habits. This happens spiritually as well, which is why Paul presents this as a warning to us. That people will come to know Jesus Christ. They will have the eyes of their hearts opened up. They will allow the light and the truth of Christ to come in. It will transform them. And that transformation is eternal promise in God as they become a family, they come into the family of God. But then as we start to walk that life, old habits start to well up again. There's a lady that I, I, I came across a few years back by the name of Jennifer, who right before I met her, she had reached rock bottom of her life. Her, her marriage was done. Her family was in extreme dysfunction. The police were at the house on a regular basis. Her view of herself as, as a mother, as a wife, as, as, just as a woman, was com in complete shambles. It was at the point where she had decided that there was no reason for her to continue living, to the point where she had written the letters to her family, left them on the table, and had gone off to finish what her thoughts told her she should do. And in another story that I could share another time, right as she was in that moment, she received a phone call from a friend who God also had been working on, and that friend pulled her back from the brink. And take a long story short, a few hours later, she and her friend end up in my office with questions about who is this Jesus and how in the world can that give me a new hope? How in the world can that make a difference in my life? I had the chance to share with her the difference that Jesus can make in her life. And she was one of those situations where as she knelt in my office and accepted Christ into her life, and she surrendered her life to him, it was one of those situations where there was this instant, dramatic transformation in her. It doesn't always happen that way, but there's one of those times where it was instant and dramatic. And, and in, in this, this incredible wave of like nothing less than miracles, all of a sudden there started to be a restoration within her home. It started within her, and suddenly there started to be a thawing within her marriage. Her family started to, to come back together a little bit. She had this joy that was unexplainable within her life. And she had this new lifestyle and these new desires and this new hope that came into her. She started reading her Bible and she started coming to church every single week. And she would be there from the earliest service to the very last person to leave. And she was starting to serve in every way she could find possible. She got baptized. She started evangelizing. She started telling everybody she met. If they didn't know Jesus before they walked past her on the street, people would know that Jesus existed. Because she was telling everybody the difference that he had made in her life. And then she started bringing people to church. 
it, it happened where she first brought her husband. And then a couple weeks later, she would bring her kids. And, and then after that, she actually showed up one day with a homeless guy that, that she had driven by on the way to church with a cart full of cans. And she says, I'll take you to the bottle depot to cash them in, but you got to come to church with me first. So he came to church because he needed a ride. And so she even brought him in to experience the truth. She was riding high on this wave. Things had changed in her life so dramatically. But like any time that you are on top of the world or riding that wave, eventually it comes back down a little bit. It doesn't last forever. And sure enough, while there have been dramatic changes in her life, some problems still welled up. Some conflicts still started to happen in her life. And she came to realize that while Christ had transformed her and she had become a new person, a new identity, there was still trouble in this world, as Jesus had promised. And that living a Christian lifestyle is actually harder than living a non-Christian lifestyle. And as the stress started to mount, and as her new faith became a little more common, those tendencies came up. And she started to slip back into what she knew before. The way she used to deal with stress before started to well up. The things that would consume her recreational time in the past started to become more familiar. Old habits and old vices started to take root in her life again, which is where the church family came around and came alongside her and said, let us walk with you for a while. Let us help you to continue walking the path before these things become destructive in your life again. You see, that's why Paul is warning us here. That's why he's warning us and he's, he's telling us that at times it will be easy to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But at times, it's also going to be hard. At other times, it's going to be ordinary. And especially during those times of when it gets ordinary, we can become very lax. We can become very open to other opportunities that used to exist in our life before. And so what he's telling us here is that in all seasons, regardless of the season you're in, the transformation is still the same. Regardless of the season of life you're in, if it's easy, if it's hard, if it's mundane, you are a new creation in Christ regardless of the season, and we need to walk in light of that and walk according to it. Not living as we used to do. Not allowing that to start taking root in our lives again. He's saying, folks, remember, we're big losers. We have lost the influence of the world. We have lost the weight and the baggage of the world we used to carry with us. We are new creations in Christ, and in all things and all times, we need to act like it. Now, for the rest of this passage, he starts to provide some very practical examples of what this can look like, of what it looks like to live in this fashion, when people, some areas where people tend to get off track a little bit. And we're going to look at a couple of these that he finishes the passage up here with. And as we do, I just want to say, some of these might hit home for some people here. This isn't sort of a personal agenda. I have by any means. We're just following the text. But it's possible some of these things are going to hit home for some people here. It might, it might touch a nerve. And if that is the case, I, I suggest to you that perhaps it's a prompting the Spirit. They say, maybe these are some areas in which, you know, which we need to do some work, which we need to confess. We need to allow the church community to come around us and to help us to walk in a way that is in light with what we've learned in Christ as opposed to the way that the, that the as he says, the pagans or that the world does. And so let's have a look at a couple of these as we, as we finish off this passage here. Remember, there's no specific issue that Paul has in writing this letter to the church of Ephesus. Sometimes in his, write, in his letters, there's a specific, a specific question or issue he's trying to, trying to deal with. Here, that's not really the case. So what he brings up here are, are some common or dangerous things that are known to erode or to harm unity. Things that are known to, to put a damper or to prevent us from growing in maturity, which he presented last week as some of the key elements that were, and some of the key goals we're trying to accomplish within the body of Christ. He says, verse 1 and verse 25, that each of you 
each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Speak truthfully to those who are amongst you in the body, for we are all members of one body of Christ. He's saying we got to stop lying. We've got to tell people the truth. Now, all of us, all the moms and dads, and all of us remember back to our moms and dads, have all said or heard the words, don't you lie to me. It's a common tendency that people have. Every mom, every dad has ever said that. But what's the problem with lying? Well, in, in a community perspective, the problem with lying is if a person lies, especially if they habitually lie, it leads to a lack of trust. And if there's no trust, when there's an absence of trust, if a person is not trustworthy, then we will not be able to develop and build authentic community. We will not be able to grow together in unity if there's somebody in the, in the mix who are like, yeah, I don't know if I can believe that guy. I don't know if I can trust him. I don't know if they're trustworthy. It will deteriorate the unity that we're trying to build. And now what are we talking about here about lies? We're not necessarily talking about just this little, you know, the, the fish was six pounds, is actually 10 pounds. That's not the type of lie we're talking about here. It, it could be more serious things that relate to community, about to growing in community. For example, if, if the life we present to people through word and through action is nothing more than our Facebook persona. You know, it, uh, where we put all the happy pictures on Facebook. We put the pictures of Johnny scoring the goal, of being on a date with our spouse, of, of getting the award, of being on vacation, of being at the birthday party. I, if that's the, the, the persona that we present and that's the sum total of it, it's the same as lying. Because there's other aspects to our lives. All of us have struggles. All of us have challenges. You don't often see people open up their Facebook account and post pictures of their dirty kitchen. Or, or the piles of laundry they haven't got to this week. Or, or the meltdown that, that their daughter is having. You don't see a husband and wife pause in the middle of a fight and go, just hold on a second, honey, I'm going to live stream this on Facebook so everybody can come in. <laughs> we, we don't put that on there because we present the Facebook persona. And it's the same as, it, it's the same as lying in a way. Now, I'm not suggesting you've got to put your whole life online. Don't do that either. That's, that's the other ditch we want to stay out of. But when we encounter each other within the body of Christ, when we come up to people in the foyer and, we, and they ask us, how are we doing? You're going, to be hard, you're going to be scared to ask this question after church now. But when we ask them, how are you doing? If we just put forward the Facebook persona of happiness, we're actually keeping part of ourselves from them. And it's, it's another form of lying. And not only does it damage our relationship and ability to have authentic community with each other, it actually sets another person up for failure too. Because all of a sudden, we've set the bar. This is what life is supposed to look like and be like. And when that happens, they're like, oh, well, i got to hide my garbage. Because i got to keep up with the Joneses. And it sets up this unhealthy reality that erodes and prevents authentic community from taking place. Another way that, that lying can happen is when we hide those challenges and we start to feel lonely. And then we can start to allow these thoughts to happen of nobody knows, nobody cares, I lack support. And we don't experience the love and the care within the community of Christ. And so we need to open those things up and allow people to come in. It can be risky, it can be hard. It's difficult, especially for a lot of guys. It's a difficult thing to do. But another area that lying can, can be a problem is, is that nobody likes to be lied to. And when you get caught in a lie, you can feel that tension, and you can feel that conflict start to well up, which is, I think, why Paul goes to the next thing here, the next dangerous thing we need to avoid in, in verse 26. When he says, in your anger, do not sin. Jumped into anger all of a sudden. This idea of some conflict can happen. And sure enough, there's other ways that conflict can happen. But conflict can happen when, when, there's, uh, when people are caught in lies, things like that. But the deal he's bringing up here with anger is that we can't allow it to linger. All of us are, are, will get angry from time to time. And not all anger is necessarily outright wrong. But at times it can be. More often than not, probably it can be. But allowing it to linger and not dealing with it definitely is something we need to avoid. 
And then after that, he gets to this classic phrase right after that. How many people have heard this one? He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. You've probably heard that one, marriage counseling, mom's words of wisdom too. Don't allow, ang- don't allow the sun to go down on your anger. What he's saying is we need to deal with it as soon as possible. We don't necessarily take that word for word where you can't go to sleep until your anger subsides because then you can wake up angry and tired, which isn't going to help you the next day. The idea here is, is to deal with it as soon as possible. Now, when I do some marriage preparation counseling or when I am brought in to do mediation between people or, or when I'm in a situation of doing just marriage counseling between conflict happening between two people, I, I spend a lot of time talking about two categories. One, we talk a lot about communication. What does it mean to communicate? What is communication? How do we effectively communicate? How do we speak and how do we listen in an effective manner? But after we've talked about that, I also then spend some time talking about conflict resolution. And the reason being is what is the difference between a discussion and an argument? Emotion, really. The emotion's the difference. Think back to the last time you had a conversation with somebody versus the last time you had an argument with them. Think back to the last time you had an argument with a friend or with a spouse. Is it possible you could have had that exact same conversation with completely different outcomes if the emotion had been removed? Is it possible to have said the exact same things without the emotion and have had a healthy debate, had a constructive conversation as opposed to having conflict, as opposed to having anger? You see, when emotion comes in, it tends to turn our thoughts and our goals from the other person, when emotions come in, it turns it to the self, to self-preservation. I am angry, and I'm right. And if I, even amount, if I even admit that you're right this much, I lose something. And when we're angry, we're not in a mood to lose. See, moving, removing the emotion can make all the difference when it comes to resolving conflict between people. And as long as anger exists, as it says in verse 27 here as well, As long as anger exists, it will give the devil a foothold. It gives him a foothold into your life. It gives him a foothold into the church. Because as long as that anger exists, the focus is upon the self. It's upon the me instead of the we. And it keeps us from coming together and reconciling. It keeps us from coming together and resolving the differences between us. And also, when we are in that state of anger, it allows a little crack to form where the devil can seep in and allows us to do that that downward spiral thinking, that, that stinking thinking where we never go anywhere healthy or good in the end. We're all familiar with stinking thinking? We've all probably done that at some point in our life. You see, it's like when there's this crack in the road in the fall, and some water gets into it, and then it frees over the wintertime, and then all of a sudden the thaw happens, there's a giant pothole. The, the power of freezing water is amazing. It can snap boulders in half. But the power of unresolved anger within a church congregation put into the hands of the enemy can snap congregations in half. We need to allow anger to be dealt with early. And here's the problem, is that unless both parties are willing to give up the anger, it's next to impossible to have reconciliation and healing. Because as long as one person is still right fighting, as long as even just one person still will not allow that humility and the, some of the character traits that, that we talked about last week to come in, it's next to impossible to allow proper community to exist. Healing recognition, uh, healing and uh, reconciliation to happen. So those are the first two things he talks about here, about lying, he talks about anger. Two very serious things that can erode unity, can erode maturity within a person, but also within the body of believers. And he gets to a third one here we'll talk about quickly. 
He, he immediately talks in verse 28 about the, it's kind of odd. He goes, anyone who has been stealing must stop, steal no longer. Now, at first you might think it seems like a, like a guild of pickpockets have worked their way into the congregation in Ephesus. And while the service is going on, there's people out there going through your coat pockets. That, that's not what he's talking about here. Because he's talking about, he's talking about lying, he's talking about anger, and he, event, he immediately jumps into this. It's, it's an analogy. So he's using an analogy here, talking about those who are stealing, about those who are taking from the community, about those who are robbing the community, the, the body of Christ of certain things. Another way to look at it, he's talking about people who contribute negatively to the community within the church. These people might be believers who have come among, and, and they, they have a genuine belief in, in the crucified, risen Son of God. And yet they haven't really put that into practice. They've allowed some of those old habits to well up too much to the point where they're stealing, they're, they're taking from the greater body. Now what are they taking? It's not necessarily change out of your pockets they're taking. They're not necessarily taking the car keys out of your purse and going for a joyride. Quite often what they're taking from us is they're taking peace and harmony from within the community. They're taking unity that could exist. They're taking joy that should be ours in Christ. They're taking the future advancement that we have all the potential to realize and acknowledge, and yet they're like an anchor to hold people back, that they're stealing from this. And what are their tools? Their tools are lying, anger, gossip, dissension. But as he's going to continue, as he finishes this verse, another tool they use is even sitting and consuming, not participating meaningfully in the body. You see, it's not enough, as he finishes the verse here, it's not enough to just stop stealing. Thus he finishes the verse. He goes, you must steal no longer, but must work. Doing something useful with your own hands so that you have something to share with those who are in need. Now that practically exists within, within our world that we need to practically be contributing, but, but also within the context of the church. He's talking about this as well, how there's this need to contribute. And it's a big thing that, theme that came up even last week in verse 11. Remember when Ryan covered this in, in chapter 4, verse 11. He says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, people who have these sort of pastoral functions or roles within the church, so that they are there to equip the body. They are there to equip people for what? For works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. To be built up through these works of service to unity and maturity. Now there are many people in the church who are good at this. The fact that we have a service every single Sunday that we have people to greet you. We have, we have people who look after the building throughout the week and people to greet you as you walk in and give you a bulletin as you come in. And we have a worship team on stage and the people up in the tech booth who don't get nearly enough recognition for what they do up there. And all these people who are teaching your kids right now and all the other things that happen throughout the week. We have a great sense of, of participation within the church here. But there are some people, I'm going to get in your kitchen a little bit right now. There are some people who, who aren't contributing to that. And Paul's saying here is that that's not okay. He's saying here even that we can go as far as to say it's not scriptural to simply just sit and consume. That we need all people contributing to what is happening within the church, in, in our context, what's happening here at West Meadows. Now, if you were among us and you were new, if you're among us and you're just sort of curious, checking out the realities, the truth of Jesus Christ, you haven't really made that commitment yet, you're, you're still at that curiosity stage, then we are thrilled absolutely thrilled that you're with us and I want to welcome you and invite you to just be among us and not be consumed with, with high levels of participation at this point, to just journey with Christ at this moment. If you're at a season where you need to be served because of crisis in your life more than being in a season of serving, I want you to be here and be served. But for the rest of us, 
Do we say, you know, things aren't that bad in my life right now. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm part of this church. I'm committed to it. Things are going pretty good for you. It's hard what he says here, but the reality of what Paul's saying is it's not okay. And it's not scriptural to just sit and consume. It'd be like inviting somebody over for dinner. And at the, end of, at the end of dinner, you don't hand them an invoice and ask them to go wash dishes. There are guests in your home. And so there are people who can come and sit. But as soon as they sign a lease, as soon as they take up residency as a roommate, the expectations change. You want them to do some chores. You want them to help pay the bills. There's a difference that's expected within people. And if we as a church are going to be able to fully go forward and to understand the mission and the community, reach the community around us and understand the full potential that exists within us that God has placed before us, if we are going to be able to do that, then we need to have the people with all hands on deck. We need to be able to, to make the budget to the point where we can fulfill the objectives that are put before us. And we need to all participate in the way that God has gifted us and given us the opportunity, the ability, and the blessings to do so. So, to recap all this and, and to close. When we first come to know Christ in our lives, it can be exciting. It, it, it can be an overjoyous event within a person's life. As we come into unity within the body of Christ and start to participate within the church, we start to understand fully what it means for that cost of salvation, for that gift that God had given. But there's good reasons to be warned about the old tendencies that we can slip back into, the old habits that are there. And the final warning that he gives us in verse 30 here, he says, watch how we live. Watch how we act in light of this in verse 30. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit with which you, you've been sealed. Remember back in chapter chapter 1 there, talk about how we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That means that when we come into Christ, the Holy Spirit came to dwell with us. And that is, is like being sealed is like being claimed by God. Where we are brought into his family, we, we are his treasured possession. And Christ promised that we would have that Holy Spirit with us to counsel us and to convict us and, and to correct us. And so we are people, if we are in Christ, we are those who bear the name of God, and we are part of his family. We are in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, and therefore, for better or for worse, our actions reflect his nature. We will either be building up that name, we will be building up that reputation, building his kingdom and building his church, or we will be doing harm to it. And we need to act in according to the reality that we are in Christ. Parents, we, we know this, where, where it grieves us at times when we buy our kids our teens, brand new clothes, and they throw them on the floor. We give them a room to live in and a bed to sleep in, and they never seem to make that bed. Right? We, we, we buy them deodorant at times, and they, you know, that's a different category. <laughs> All these things we give as parents, and we want them to use it for the right purposes. And yet when they take the car to go to work and instead join a street racing club, it grieves us right? when they make the wrong choices with these things. Well, so too when we've received this gift of salvation. We've received this gift of the church. When we don't use it the way that God's purpose is intended for, it grieves the Holy Spirit among us. And so let's be warned today to not live like the pagans do. To not live lifestyles that are defined by things like bitterness and right fighting and anger and division and slander and hatred. To not live like that, to not tolerate those sorts of things, but instead rather to live lives of kindness and compassion forgiveness, to live forth the things that we know Jesus Christ exemplified and lived for and stood for as well, and to allow those things to rule in our lives too. Last thing I'll share with you here very briefly. 
is that Paul's words here are not just important for us today, but they actually would become prophetic for the church. They become prophetic for the church in the days ahead. Because another apostle would write another letter one day by penning the words of Jesus himself. We read about this in Revelation 2, where the words of Jesus to the church of Ephesus say that I know you're good people. I know you work hard. I know that you persevere through many trials. I know that you strive to maintain truthful lives and that you strive to stay on guard against those people who might come in and bring false motives or false teachings, that you, you stand against those things. And he's happy about that and pleased with it. But then he says, however, there's a problem. He says, you've slipped back into some old patterns and you've slipped back into some old habits. There was this time in the past when your love for me, there was this time in the past when your love for each other was what you were known for and it was vibrant and it was exciting and it brought about maturity and it brought about unity within the body. But you've forgotten. You've slipped back. You've forgotten your first love. And if that's the case, then, then Jesus calls upon them to turn back to turn back and to do what they did at first, when they first came into that new life, when they first came to understand what it means to be a new creation. And so I leave you with these two questions as I close in prayer. To honestly examine yourself and ask yourself, have I slipped back a little bit? Have I forgotten my first love, even just a little bit, and allowed some of those old habits to creep back in? If so, Jesus says this. He simply says, repent. Turn from those things and do what you did at first. Go back to the things that you were taught, the healthier lifestyles and activities that you were taught and know that you need to do. But then secondly, if you have never really crossed that line, if, if you've never softened your heart and allowed Jesus Christ's truth and light to come in, if you are still carrying the excessive baggage of the world that you were never designed or meant to carry with you for a lifetime, if you need to join the, the biggest losers club, if you will, and be freed from all of that, that all the stuff that Jesus paid the price for, we don't have to carry with us. And he says this as well. He says, I stand at the door and I knock. And if you will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and dine with you. And you will be with me. So whatever that knocking may sound like for you today, whether it's a knocking to say we need to move back from areas we've slipped, or if it's a knocking that says you need to open the door and allow the truth of Christ to come in, I invite you to do that today. Following the service will be prayer teams at the front here. They can come meet with you and they'd love to pray with you. Andrew, I invite you to just quickly pray with me right now as we head to this communion as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift that you've given us in Jesus Christ and the fact that because of him we can live new lives. We can live transformed selves. We, we can know what it is to, to live in him as opposed to just among those in the world. I pray, Lord, that today that the spirit among us would be convicting in, in nature, not in, a, not in a tearing down way, but in, in a building up manner, that we would understand if there's some business we need to do with you, that we'd be open to that. That the end result would be, would be maturity within ourselves, maturity within the body, but also unity that will carry us through and not allow the devil to have a foothold into our lives because you have defeated him upon the cross. And we claim that and we thank you for that today. In Jesus' name.